Okay, turn with me to Matthew chapter 6. We're looking at the, uh, the model prayer here in Matthew 6 as we continue through this book. I, I told uh, someone on the bus this morning that uh, this book may be the last book I ever teach because uh, if the Lord doesn't return first, I may die before I get through this thing. It's, it's such a massive book. Um, but anyway, uh, we're looking at the model prayer, and so we're up to verse 10. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And we started this last week, and so it's... Uh, uh, it's, uh, we said that when we pray your kingdom come, we're affirming that we are willingly relinquishing the rule of our own lives. And we're saying to the Holy Spirit, you take control and do what you will for your glory. Uh, we're kingdom people. And so for us to pray your kingdom come is the most basic part of our lives. Uh, we're to pray for God's causes. How, how can we call ourselves Christians? How can we say we've affirmed the lordship of Christ? How can we say we've crowned him king of our lives when we're not preoccupied with his causes, uh, but with our own causes? Uh, and what is God's program? It is to exalt Christ. His program is that the consummation of history would be in the reign and rule of Jesus Christ. Uh, the kingdom is that for which God has planned history, that he may rule, that he may reign, and that he may be supreme. So he comes first in our prayers. Therefore, before we go bursting into his presence with all of our petitions and requests, we need to stop long enough to consider his causes and his kingdom and affirm our yearning that he would be glorified in his purposes and reiterate that our requests are only valid requests insofar as they are in accord with his purposes and will. Now, the first thing we noticed about this, this verse is the word kingdom. Uh, the Greek word does not refer primarily to a geographical area, but to sovereignty and dominion. Uh, the idea is that of reigning over, of having absolute authority or dominion. Christ is the king. He reigns. He rules. He has dominion and authority and sovereignty over all. Right now, his reign is a spiritual kingdom in the hearts of his people. One day, Christ will physically reign as the rightful king, and his reign will be with unlimited authority. He will rule with a rod of iron that is absolute control over any and all rebels. And it is the rule of Christ, the reign of Christ, the sovereignty of Christ for which we are to pray. Uh, but let me just touch on what we mean by the kingdom of God. Uh, Jesus spoke about the kingdom all the time. Uh, the reign and rule of Christ is this apex of uh, human history. Nothing else matters except for that. And those things which do matter, matter because they come into accord with this. And Jesus spoke of the kingdom in three ways, past, present, and future. So how can the kingdom be already there in the past, here in the present, and yet need to come in the future? And we said that we need to make a distinction 
that'll help us understand. First of all, there are two elements to the kingdom. There's the universal kingdom and the earthly kingdom. Uh, the one, obviously, the universal kingdom covers the whole universe. <clears throat> the other is related to the earth. And so in one sense, God is the king of the whole universe. There's no question about that. He made it. He runs it. He'll bring it to its consummation. He is the universal king. Uh, and he mediates his reign through his son who rules and is given the right to judge and reign. That's the universal kingdom. But look at verse 10 for a moment. It says, your kingdom come, your will be done. Where? On earth as it is in heaven. So Jesus prays that we are God's kingdom. We're to pray that God's kingdom will be established on earth. And the point is, is that the universal kingdom is already established. Uh, the prayer is to is to let this earth and all of its inhabitants be brought into harmony with heaven. What we're to be praying is, oh, Lord, stop this rebellion. Turn it around. May you be reigning here as you are reigning there. Uh, so the purpose then of the prayer is to bring his kingdom to earth, that he might put down sin, that he might put down rebellion, that he might put down evil, that he might bring in God's holy name, God's reign, God's will. How does it come? How is this prayer to be answered? Well, we said last time it comes three ways. First of all, it comes by conversion. We want people to come to Christ, and when they do, he reigns in their heart. Uh, then the kingdom also comes through commitment. As believers, we pray two ways. First, we pray, Lord, may your program, your plans, your rule be supreme in the world. May your kingdom come in the hearts of rebellious mankind who do not glorify you. Secondly, we should be praying, Lord, may you reign supreme in my own life. Uh, that's commitment. It's the place at which I say every day, you are my Lord and I submit to you. But there's a third way the kingdom comes, and it comes by consummation. What I mean by that is that Jesus is physically coming again to establish his kingdom. And it will be a literal thousand-year millennial kingdom in which he will set things right and rule with a rod of iron. So there will be an actual coming again of God's kingdom to this earth. And we're to pray for its coming. So we're to pray not only that his reign would come in the hearts and lives of people who don't know him, we are to pray that his reign would come in our hearts to the fullness of which he is worthy, and we are to pray for that day when he will come and break the tyranny of sin and set this evil, ugly, cursed world aright. And it's got to be that way because that's what the Bible promises. But the coming kingdom isn't the only part of God's plan. Look at the rest of verse 10. It says, Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Now, with that statement, we are immediately confronted with a dilemma. Uh, do we really need to say, Lord, your will be done? I mean, isn't God sovereign over everything anyway? So isn't that a rather useless thing to pray? Uh, isn't it apparent that God's will will be done? Well, some people have taken this concept so far 
that they even question the validity of prayer altogether. Uh, they say, if, if God is sovereign over everything and has ordained all that is going to take place, will take place, and it's all working according to his plan, then why bother to pray at all? And so the question comes, does God change his mind? Are we really praying to get God to do something other than what he's already planned to do? Uh, someone may ask, well, does our will override God's will if we earnestly pray? Enough. Uh, does God ordain a certain thing, but if we're persistent enough, he says, well, if you're going to be that persistent about it, I guess I'll let you go ahead and have it. Uh, I think you could sum up the whole thing by asking two very simple questions. One, if God is sovereign, why pray? And two, if prayer is commanded, then how can God be sovereign? Uh, now, I believe there's an answer to those questions. But I don't know what it is. <laughs> because this is one of the great paradoxes of Scripture that Calvinists and Arminians have debated for centuries. Uh, and it tells me, again, that the mind of God is infinitely beyond my own mind. For although this is an impossible dilemma for me, it is not for God. Uh, the incredible gap between the best of human thinking and the knowledge of God is illustrated in the fact that we have no ability to resolve such an apparent contradiction, which is no contradiction at all in the mind of God. And it can be illustrated in so many ways. For example, if I say to you, who wrote the Gospel of Matthew? I'd probably get two answers. Some would say, Matthew. And others would say, the Holy Spirit. Which answer is right? Yeah, both of them. It was Matthew and the Holy Spirit. And it wasn't that Matthew wrote part and the Holy Spirit wrote part. Uh, and it wasn't that Matthew was nothing more than a robot who was writing down what the Holy Spirit dictated. Uh, no, it was Matthew who wrote it. And in it, we see Matthew's heart and soul, his feelings, his vocabulary. Uh, it's Matthew, but it's also the Holy Spirit. It's 100% Matthew, and yet it's 100% the Holy Spirit. Uh, you say, well, it can't be 200% of something. You're right. It can't be that way in your mind. And that's just a reminder of where you are in comparison to where God is. Uh, if I say to you, who lives your Christian life? You say, Bruce, like Paul said, I've been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And my response is, Yes, but Paul also said, I discipline my body, I beat my body and make it my slave so that I myself will not be disqualified. Uh, so who's doing it? You or him? Uh, the answer is both. It's got to be all of you, total commitment to present your body a living and holy sacrifice. But it's also all of him. It's no longer you who lives, but Christ who lives in you. So how can it be all of you and all of him? Well, again, it's beyond our reasoning, but it, that, again, is the proof that God is infinitely above us. Uh, if I say to you, was Jesus God or man? What's the answer? Yes. 
Again, you have the paradox. He's 100% God. He's 100% man. That's impossible in our minds uh, because of the limitations of our conception. That's a paradox. But it isn't a problem at all for God. So do me a favor. Please, do me a favor. When you find those kinds of paradoxes in Scripture, don't try to come up with something in the middle and ruin both of them. Okay? That's what the temptation is. Don't try to find some middle ground. Let them coexist with the tension with which God designed them. Listen, God is sovereign. God has predetermined the flow of the universe. God knows the end from the beginning. God will do what God will do. But on the other hand, prayer works. If you don't understand how those two come together, don't let your theology destroy your prayer life. Uh, the attitude that says, well, it's all going to be done in his way anyway, so what's the need to pray, pray literally denies scripture. John MacArthur writes about this matter, and I think it's absolutely right on point. Listen to what he says. Quote, It is absolutely clear from Scripture that God is sovereign, and yet not only allows, but commands that man exercise his own volition in certain areas. If man were not able to make his own choices, God's commands would be futile and meaningless, and his punishments cruel and unjust. If God did not act in response to prayer, Jesus' teaching about prayer would also be futile and meaningless. Our responsibility is not to solve the dilemma, but to believe and act on God's truths, whether or not some of them seem to conflict with one another. To compromise one of God's truth in an effort to defend another is the stuff of which heresy is made. We are to accept every part of every truth in God's word, leaving the resolution of any seemingly conflicts <clears throat> to him. Attempting on a human level to resolve all the apparent paradoxes in scripture is an act of arrogance and an attack on the truth and intent of God's revelation, end quote. I think that's a wonderful way of explaining what our approach to such matters ought to be. We we need to be very careful about what we think about those things because we run the risk of falling into error and even heresy if we aren't careful. Now, now then, looking at the phrase, your will be done, <clears throat> we come to a great aspect of God's plan. Uh, whenever we pray, we are to pray in accord with God's will. Uh, now, I want you to think this through because it's a very important statement. All of our prayers, I suppose, come down to the bottom line, God, your will be done. Uh, and then the Greek literally says, as in heaven, also on earth. Uh, God's will in heaven is spoken of first in, in the emphatic position rather than the way our English translations phrase it. Uh, why does it do that way? It's a simple matter of emphasizing that God's will is always done in heaven. And the fact that Jesus tells us to pray, your will be done on earth, indicates that God's will is not always done on earth. Uh, I think that's pretty obvious to us. But in God's wise and gracious plan, prayer is essential to the proper working of his divine will on earth. 
Uh, David prayed that way. Psalm 40, verse 8. He said, I delight to do your will, O my God. Uh, he wanted to know it and he wanted to do it. That was his heart. Jesus said the same thing in John 4:34. My food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. In John 6:38, he says, For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And in Luke 22:42, he's recorded praying. In the garden, Father, if you're willing, remove this cup from me, yet not my will, but yours be done. Jesus always prayed that God's will be done, your will be done. Now, what does that mean to do that? What are we really saying? I want to cover what it doesn't mean and then what it does mean. I think that's important because there, here there are people who pray your will be done, but they pray it with the wrong understanding. So we need to know what kind of praying for God's will to be accomplished is incorrect. First of all, there are people, and I'm including Christians here, who pray your will be done with an attitude of bitter resentment. Uh, in other words, it's a statement of someone who believes they cannot escape from the inevitable and they're mad about it. Uh, they think of God as an oppressive, dictatorial, overbearing, selfish, uh, cruel individual. And so praying your will be done is, is said from nothing more than bitter resentment. Uh, they see God's sovereignty as nothing more than him imposing his will like a dictator. One Bible scholar writes these words about the individual who thinks this way. He says, quote, he may not say it, not because he wishes to say it, but because he has accepted the fact that he cannot possibly say anything else. He may say it because he's accepted the fact that God is too strong for him and that it is useless to batter his head against the walls of the universe, end quote. Uh, you may have been through that in your own life. Uh, you may have come to some situation in your life where you say, Lord, your will be done almost through clenched teeth. Uh, maybe in the loss of a dear, precious child. Uh, perhaps when your spouse abandoned you. Uh, perhaps when you found your life turned upside down by some tragedy. Or you experienced some disabling condition and you said, uh, God, your will be done. But it was nothing more than bitter resignation. Uh, there are far more unbelievers who approach life that way, uh, and they become bitter and angry at God. But there are some Christians who think that same way at times. To them, your will be done becomes nothing more than the acceptance of the actions of a cruel God. There are other people who say, your will be done. And they don't necessarily mean bitter resentment, but rather they simply mean passive resignation. Uh, whatever you want to do, Lord, I can't do anything about it anyway, so your will be done. Uh, to them, your will be done becomes nothing more than the acceptance of the inevitable actions of an uncaring God. Uh, there isn't, this isn't so much a lack of knowledge about God. 
the first one, those who are angry and bitter at God, it's a lack of understanding of God as a loving father, a lack of understanding that God cares, uh, that God's heart breaks over the pain of man, uh, a lack of understanding that God loves, so much so that he died in the midst of his love. So in the bitter resentment perspective, there's a lack of understanding. But in the passive resignation perspective, there's a lack of faith. Uh, passive resignation basically feels like, you know, I just don't get too concerned about the whole thing because prayer doesn't do much anyway. Uh, so just resign yourself to the fact that it's God's will. It's, it's kind of like admitting defeat, sort of passively. Uh, there are people who say your will be done in their prayers and what they're really saying is God I don't have any kind of faith at all that my prayer is going to do any good and so I'm just going to say this because I know this covers all the bases uh, is that how you pray anybody willing to admit they've prayed that way before I have uh, you just sort of joy joylessly accept that it's going to turn out that way, uh, the way that God wants it to turn out. Uh, so you pray in a rather tired, weary, defeated, resigned way. Uh, this perspective is very often true of Christians. We do this over and over again. The primary reason I believe our prayer life is as weak as it is, is that we don't really believe it'll do anything anyway. Uh, we just bail out on passive resignation. Uh, we talk to the Lord about something and then we just sort of leave it and go on because we really don't think it'll make a difference anyway. Uh, we say your will be done as if we already know in advance that what we're asking for probably won't happen. Uh, let me illustrate this from Scripture. In Acts 12, Paul uh, Peter had been thrown into prison. And that upsets the church very much. Why? Because there had been one other member of their number who had been in prison just prior to Peter, namely James, the brother of John. What happened to him? Herod had him beheaded. And when Herod saw that that pleased the Jewish authorities, he threw Peter into prison also. And undoubtedly, he planned to do the same thing to him. So a bunch of the church members gathered in Mary, the mother of John Mark's house, and they held a prayer meeting. And in Acts 12, verse 5, it says that they were praying fervently. So they're praying continuously and fervently for the Lord to arrange Peter's release. And the Lord answered their prayer. And he sent one of his angels to break Peter out of jail. So Peter heads over to Mary's house to the prayer meeting. And when he got there, Rhoda, the servant girl, came to the door and she heard his voice and she's happy. Uh, she's so happy she didn't even open the door. Instead, she ran back in and yelled, Peter's at the door, Peter's at the door. And Acts 12, 15 says that they told her, you're out of your mind. That's not exactly a nice thing to say, but uh, when she kept insisting that Peter was there, they said, girl, don't you know he's in prison? Uh, Herod's planning on executing. It's not him out there. It's probably his angel. Uh, in Jewish thought, they believed that everyone had a guardian angel who could assume the form of the person they protected. 
So it may have been that that's what they assumed, or it could have been that they assumed that he had already been killed and that this was his spirit, his ghost. Uh, regardless, Peter's out there banging on the front door until they finally go out there, and it says they saw him and were amazed. Why were they amazed? Because they were so like so many other Christians, even at that time when they had seen the hand of God in so many ways, they questioned whether their prayers would do any good anyway. They were probably thinking, you know, James got executed. Why should we expect God to save Peter? I mean, we'll pray for his release, but we really don't think God's going to answer our prayers. And don't we fall into the same habit? Uh, we see that we have a big financial need of some kind whether personally or at the church, and we pray about it, but in the back of our minds, or even perhaps in the forefront of our minds, we think, God probably won't answer this, but I'll pray anyway because that's what I'm supposed to do. And we fall into that same kind of passive resignation. Let me approach this matter from a different angle. How many times have you heard about some tragic event, a plane crash with many killed, a hurricane or like the tornadoes they had just this weekend that killed so many, an earthquake that devastates everything, takes the lives of several people, and someone will say, well, I guess it was the Lord's will. Or one of your family members is dying of some terminal disease and someone tries to supposedly comfort you by saying it's the Lord's will. Folks, that kind of thinking will suck the energy right out of your prayer life uh, if that's how you perceive the world. Remember, what did Jesus say when he began his ministry? Luke 4, 18 and 19. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he appointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim release to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to set free those who are oppressed, to proclaim the favorable year of the Lord. And at that point, someone will say, but Bruce, that's spiritual captivity, spiritual blindness, spiritual oppression that he came to overcome. That's true. But what did he do immediately right after that? He went out and healed a demon-possessed man who had been held captive and oppressed by demons for many years. And he healed people of all kinds of physical diseases, it says, right there in the same context of that chapter. And for the three years of his ministry, that was his pattern, to proclaim spiritual release from the captivity of sin by repentance and faith in him and to physically heal those who were sick and ill and lame and blind and demon-possessed. God is sovereign, but he is not independently deterministic. Looking at God's sovereignty in a fatalistic way, thinking what will be will be, absolutely destroys faithful prayer and faithful obedience of every sort. That is not a high view of God's sovereignty. It is a destructive and unbiblical view of it. Uh, it is not God's will that people die, or why would Christ have come to destroy death? Uh, it was not God's will that people go to hell, or why would he send his only son to take away the penalty of sin upon himself so that men might escape hell? 2 Peter 3.9 says, The Lord is not slow about his promise, as 
some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. You say, well, now wait a minute. God has to allow it. That's right. But do not make it an expression of his will. I believe in human responsibility. I also believe in divine sovereignty. That's another one of those paradoxes that we have to deal with. Uh, God has allowed sin. God has allowed the cup of iniquity to be full. But it is not the expression of his will. He tolerates it. God is not responsible for sin. He is not responsible for its consequences. It's not his will. Let me show, what I, show you what I mean by that. There's a tension here. I know there's a tension, and I know some of you are fighting this in your mind. In Matthew 10, 28, it says, Do not fear those who kill the body but are unable to kill the soul, but rather fear him who is able to destroy both soul and body in hell. That's God. God will destroy soul and body in hell. That's not Satan. That's God. Satan will be one of those who is being destroyed. He's not the one doing it. Uh, God destroys soul and body in hell. You say, well, it must be the will of God that they be destroyed. No, 2 Peter 3.9, God is not willing for any to perish. God's holiness and God's justice and God's righteousness require him to deal with sin, but that is not God's will. That's not his strong desire. That's within the framework of his tolerance. In John 5:40, Jesus said, "You're unwilling to come to me so that you might so that you may have life." And he wept over the city of Jerusalem and said, "Oh Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those sent to her, how often I wish wanted to gather your children together just as a hen gathers her brood under her wings and you would not have it." In Jeremiah 13, God pronounces judgment upon the people of Israel for their rebellion against him and he says I will not spare nor show pity nor have compassion so as not to ruin them and then after pronouncing that kind of incredible judgment he says but if you will not listen to it my soul will sob in secret for such pride and my eyes will bitterly weep and flow down with tears because the flock of Yahweh has been taken captive why because the judgment because judgment has never been the expression of God's great desire for man. John 3.16, God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. Why? That whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. Now there's another issue here that's related. That's the question that you hear a lot. Well then, why did God allow sin? I mean, if he's sovereign over everything, he could have forbidden sin from entering into his creation, but he did not. So why does he, did he allow sin? Let me take a few minutes to chase this bunny to its furthest hole. Uh, there are many Christians who try to ignore the question by saying, I don't know, I'm not good, I'm, sh I'm not God, I'm sure he had a good reason, but I don't know what it is. I don't think that's a good approach. If an unbeliever asks you that question in sincerity with a seeking heart, that's not the answer they want to hear. Another popular answer among Christians, which is superficial and deeply flawed, is that God allowed the fall because he wanted to allow room for human free will. The argument goes like this. 
God knew that free will is necessary for moral virtue and meaningful relationships, so he created man with free will, but that opened up the possibility that we would choose evil rather than good. That answer falls short for several reasons. Uh, I'll mention a couple of them. First, having free will does not necessarily entail the possibility of doing evil. Uh, God himself has free will. Uh, he is morally virtuous and can enter into meaningful relationships, and yet Scripture says that it is impossible for him to do evil. So why couldn't God have granted us the same kind of non-evil-doing freedom? Uh, secondly, the Bible makes clear that human free choices are not beyond God's sovereign control. Uh, it was within God's power to ensure that Adam freely obeyed rather than disobeyed. Uh, and hence it was within God's power to give Adam free will and to ensure that Adam did not fall. Which means God must have had some reason for allowing the fall than merely a desire to bestow free will on his creatures. So when we think about these things, we have to consider an even broader question, and that is, why does God do anything at all? I mean, what is his overarching purpose in all that he does? If we can answer that, it'll shed light on the more specific problems of God's reason for allowing the fall. I don't think there's a better answer than the one which Jonathan Edwards gave to this question. Yes, I know that I told you last week that I didn't agree with his post-millennial views, but his argument as to why God allowed sin to enter his creation is by far the best answer that any theologian has ever devised. Edwards argues that the Old Testament and the New Testament present one consistent picture, which is that God created the world not primarily to promote human happiness, but to manifest his own glory. In fact, God's purpose in creating the world had to be his own glory because God by nature the, uh, is by nature the greatest good and the ultimate end of all things. He is most certainly concerned about human happiness, but our happiness serves a higher purpose in finding its true fulfillment in God's supreme goodness and beauty. And scripture makes clear that God's glory was also his purpose in providing redemption after the fall. In Ephesians 1, Paul uses three purpose clauses to describe the blessings of salvation that God has lavished on us. And he says, in verse 6, he says, to the praise of the glory of his grace. In verses 12 and 14, he says, to the praise of his glory. So then God's overarching purpose in all that he does, both in creation and in redemption, is the manifestation of his glory and the delight of his creatures in his divine splendor. So then, if God's primary purpose in creation and redemption is the display of his glory, what does that tell us about why he allowed the fall? Because both, I mean, both logically and chronologically, the fall comes between creation and redemption, right? Without a creation, 
there could be no fallen creation. Without a fallen creation, there could be no redeemed creation. Uh, so salvation presupposes sin. Restoration presupposes a fall. Thus, it is reasonable to infer that God's primary purpose in allowing the fall was to showcase his glory both in the original creation and also in his powerful and merciful restoration of that creation from its rebellion and corruption. But was redemption really necessary for God to be glorified? Couldn't an unfallen creation glorify God as much as a restored creation? The answer is no, it couldn't. Unless there was a fall, we could not know all that we know about God. We, could, we would have no appreciation for his holiness, infinitely set apart from his creatures in absolute perfection, if we did not know what the impact of sin is in our lives. We would not know him as a savior or as a redeemer, nor any of many other aspects and attributes of his character. It is only because of the fall that the vastness of God's holiness and his love can be understood by any of his creatures. You might think that an unfallen creation would be preferable to a fallen creation. And all else being equal, that's true. But all else is not equal. Because our world is not merely a fallen creation. It is a fallen creation into which the eternal Son of God entered, taking on human nature, perfectly expressing God's likeness in our midst, living a morally flawless life, making atonement for our sins through his sacrificial death, rising in triumph from the grave and ascending into heaven where he continuously intercedes and secures for us an eternal, joyful dwelling place in God's presence. Therefore, a world with no fall and no salvation is altogether less God-glorifying than a world with a tragic fall, but also a wonderful salvation. To know fellowship with God as a creature made in his image is a great blessing. To know fellowship with God as a redeemed sinner, restored in his son's image, is immeasurably greater. So once we grasp that such eternal glories could not have been realized apart from the fall, we can begin to appreciate the foremost reason why our wise and gracious creator willed that sin would enter his creation. Let me just pause for a moment because we have been swimming in the deep end of the theological pool for the last 10 minutes. Are there any questions or comments? Yes. Surely when we pray, we have to pray with the full belief that God will do what is right. Mm -hmm. That he has every, every right, obviously every right as well as power, to overwrite what, are, what I particularly want. Mm -hmm. And if I have the knowledge that not only am I still corrupt, but I'm also lacking myriad of uh, reasons not to do what I pray for. Uh, is that not the way to approach prayer? Absolutely. 
But we can. It doesn't mean we stop praying. You can do it. Yes, but absolutely. If it is not His will, and His will by definition is the right thing, mm -hmm. He will do His will. Right. If I happen to come across the right thing, He will do that. <laughs> not because I asked him to. Yeah. Yeah. Well, let me continue here. We have people who come along and they say, well, if God is sovereign, then God's will is expressed in your sin. That logic is really flawed uh, because Habakkuk 1.13 says God's eyes are too pure to approve evil. He cannot look upon wickedness with favor. And James 1.13 says, Let no one say when he's tempted, I'm being tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted by evil, and he himself does not tempt anyone. God never brings you into sin as the expression of his will. Man sins because he is enslaved to sin. Uh, man does not have a free will. His will is only free in that he has the freedom to choose which sins he will do next. Uh, so then getting back to the text then, there are people who say, your will be done. And to them, it's just that God's going to do what he's going to do. And he runs everything. And since it's all determined in advance, don't worry about it. They say, well, I don't really need to pray because after all, it's all cut and dried. It's all settled. It's all God's will. There's no need for me to pray. That kind of thinking in which it's just a matter of a theological definition of God and everything fits under it is so impersonal to me. Uh, it's very fatalistic in its approach. It's not at all what we're talking about when we say your will be done. Not at all. We're not just fatalistically giving up to God's overarching will to which we have absolutely no choice or alternative. Let me show you an illustration of what I mean. Turn with me to Luke 18. Luke chapter 18. And we'll begin with verse 1. Now he was telling them a parable to show them that at all times they ought to pray and not to lose heart. So what's the purpose of the parable? What's he trying to teach? That at all times they ought to pray and not lose heart. In other words, you don't want to just stop praying. You don't, you don't want to quit. You don't want to become weary. You don't want to file it away as useless. You ought always to pray and never to stop. You ought to pray, never lose heart. That's the point here. And then he tells a story. Verse 2. In a certain city there was a judge who did not fear God and did not respect man. There was a widow in that city. And she kept coming to him saying, Give me legal protection from my opponent. So she's saying, I'm being taken advantage of by someone who is using the legal system to defraud me. There's injustice here. Judge, please make it right. Verse 4. For a while he was unwilling, but afterward he said to himself, Even though I do not fear God nor respect man, yet because this widow bothers me, I will give her legal protection. Otherwise, by continually coming, she will wear me out. In other words, I'm so sick of hearing this woman, I'm going to do what she asks because i got to get rid of her. You know how that is because you've done it with your kids or a friend or a relative. Um, they ask you the first time you say no, but about the 15th time you say, yes, yes, please go ahead. Just leave me alone. Uh, so then what's Jesus point? Verse six, 
And the Lord said, Hear what their unrighteous judge said. Now will not God bring about justice to, uh, for his elect who cry to him day and night? And will he delay long over them? I tell you that he will bring about justice for them quickly. Jesus is saying, If an unjust judge will give justice to a woman who badgers him, how will, what will a just, loving, righteous, caring God do to his children if they're persistent? The parallel Jesus is drawing here is not between God and the judge because there's no parallel there at all, but rather between the widow and the prayerful believer. Listen, when we pray, your will be done, we're not praying with passive resignation that says, well, God, do whatever you wish. Otherwise, why would Jesus say that when we're to pray, that we're to pray at all times and not lose heart? That's not some passive thing. Don't look around at all the injustice that is befalling Christians in our society and just say, well, God's abandoned our nation and there's nothing we can do about it, so why bother to pray? Uh, yeah, I believe God's abandoned our nation. But you continue to pray for God's righteousness to prevail. Uh, for those in leadership who oppose his moral righteousness to fail. And for those who uphold biblical values to succeed. You don't sit back when your child goes off in rebellion against God and all that you taught them about him and say, well, he or she has gone their own way and there's nothing else I can say to bring them back. Uh, no, you may not be able to say anything to convince that child to repent and turn to the Lord, but you can pray. When you've received that diagnosis that you didn't want to hear, don't say, well, there's no sense in praying for healing because God's already determined the outcome. No, pray that he would show mercy and heal you. Uh, you remember Hezekiah's prayer in 2 Kings 20? The man was terminally ill. God even had Isaiah tell him, Thus says the Lord, set your house in order, for you shall die and not live. But Hezekiah prays and he told the Lord, Remember me now, O Lord, I beseech you how I walk before you in truth and with a whole heart and have done what is good in your sight. And the Lord sent Isaiah back to Hezekiah to tell him, Thus says the Lord, the God of your father David, I have heard your prayer, I have seen your tears, behold, I will heal you. I'll add 15 years to your life. And that's what happened. But after you've prayed, maybe it doesn't turn out the way you want. Maybe the whole fabric of the nation falls apart. Maybe the years of your child's rebellion keep piling up. Maybe you don't get well and from a human standpoint, it's clear that you're not long for this world. But that doesn't mean you don't that you just stop praying. You know, Christians have been praying for Jesus to come again for a long time, haven't they? Uh, we've been praying for 2,000 years and we'll keep on praying because we want him to return in all his glory and be honored and every need about to him, unlike what happened when he came the first time. We're at all times to pray and not lose heart. Never quit praying for God's will to be done on earth as it is in heaven. God's will is already done in heaven, isn't it? The angels do his will. Psalm 103.20 
Bless the Lord, you his angels, mighty in strength, who perform his word, obeying the voice of his word. They are unwavering in their obedience to his will. There's never a discussion or argument or disgruntled obedience. It's not the way it is on earth. The Lord prods and pokes us and sooner or later we get moving. But in heaven, it's an immediate response of obedience. And they perform God's will completely, willingly, and constantly. You say, well, I'm committed to that. What does that really mean? Well, it means that the bottom line in your heart is that God causes that God's causes are the things that concern you. Let, let me give you a key statement that should underline your thinking. Here it is. The death of self is the beginning of a true prayer life. The death of self is the beginning of a true prayer life. Only when self dies does true prayer begin, because when self is alive, self will dominate, and that is not true prayer. True prayer is dominated by his name, his kingdom, his will, not ours. And when we pray, we must pray with faith, believing that God does hear us and will answer us. John MacArthur says, quote, I think the greatest hindrance to prayer is not a lack of technique, lack of biblical knowledge, or even a lack of enthusiasm for God's work, but a lack of faith. We simply do not pray with the expectation that our prayers will make a difference in our lives and other people's lives in the church or in the world, end quote. Remember James 5.16, it says the effective prayer of a righteous man can, what? Accomplish much. We need to pray with fervency for God to do whatever it takes to bring repentance to the heart of believers, to meet the needs of his children and for his name to be glorified. Well, I'm looking at my notes and thinking I should probably stop even though I've, I've reached a spot I can stop. If I keep going, I won't, I'll be stopping in the middle of an important part. So I'm going to stop. Are there any uh, questions or comments? I know that we, uh, we were spending some time with some tough theological issues there. Uh, that sometimes bother people and trouble their, them in their thinking. Uh, so I hope, I hope that what I said sort of answered some of those questions this morning. But uh, I know you may have to wrestle with it in your mind a little bit. But any other comments or questions? Oh, over here. Okay. I do appreciate, sir, the fact that you said pray for leaders to fail. I've been praying wrongly a lot, and I love that because it just encompasses everything. Thank you. Well, I didn't say all leaders to fail. <laughs> the evil leaders That's right. to fail. Yes. Yes, so. I think that reference in Acts is a wonderful thing because I think we're all like a man that said, I believe, but help my unbelief. Mm -hmm. So in Acts, when they were praying for Peter's release, I mean, mm -hmm. that's what... That's what we do. We yes. don't have enough faith, but I'm believing. Yeah. Believe. Yep. They they were praying. They knew they were supposed to pray. But then when God answered, they couldn't believe he actually answered. Right. And aren't we the same <laughs> way? So surprised. Yeah, yeah. 
Yeah, we we pray for the Lord to provide funds for some, say for the renovation here at church. And we think, boy, that's a lot of money. And then he provides it and we go, wow. And it should have been like, yeah, we knew he was going to. Yes, we should be. We should be. We should always be in awe of his answers to our prayer, that he really cares enough and loves us enough. He answers our prayers. There's a, there's a book, uh, Spectacular Sins, that talks about mm-hmm. the importance of... Uh, Did Jerry Bridges write that one too? I can't remember. Okay. Jerry Bridges wrote half the books in the evangelical uh-huh. community, I think. He, uh, and they're all good. So, all about that same yeah, thing about what yeah, we learned from, yeah. from the no. devastation of Now, he wrote the book Respectable Sins. That's yeah, his. Yeah, he did. His, yeah. And I'm not sure about this one. Okay. Yes. So, basically, I mean, when it all boils down, it's like God is sovereign and we're to trust him. Right? We're to, he is sovereign. We're to trust him. And at the same time, we keep praying. Our human responsibility is to keep praying. That he, just like Hezekiah, you know, just like Hezekiah, uh, you know, God's already sent his prophet to him to tell him, you're going to die. Set your house in order. And Hezekiah prays, and the Lord sends Hezekiah, sends Isaiah back to say, I heard your prayer. I'm giving you 15 more. So. God was gracious to Hezekiah too, and he wanted a sign. Yeah. The Lord had this, the shadow on the steps go back. Yeah, the Lord was... Gracious to a godly man. That tells us about us too, doesn't it? He'll be gracious to godly people. I saw. Well, isn't that same thing going back to the book of Esther, where God's not even mentioned? But, yeah. But His providential care of yeah. the nation is all through the book. You know, the night he read that, that he couldn't sleep. Yeah. 127 provinces that mm-hmm. the man was in charge of, but he chose that one book. Yeah. So. Right, right. Uh, go in and not, uh, Fear. Yeah. So, well, yes. John Piper. Wrote John it. Piper wrote it. Okay. All right. Thank you. Okay. Let's close with prayer.